Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Jeriah had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. 
Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Warfare in the ancient world uh, was dependent upon the weather. And as our story opens, winter is yielding to spring. Uh, The winter rains have stopped or at least slowed down. And the way war worked in the ancient Near East was when that happened and the weather got better, the kings could go out to war. And in this case, there were still several enemies to the north that David still had to deal with. And for as long as David can remember, every spring he went to battle, except this year. David decides to stay at home. The Hebrew literally reads, David sat in Jerusalem. The king is not supposed to be in Jerusalem during wartime. And quickly we see that something terrible has happened. Uh, That this tremendous warrior of faith, the man who rushed towards Goliath, crying out for the glory of the God of Israel, the man who wouldn't even uh, take a step without consulting Nathan or inquiring of the Lord about whether they should go and fight this battle or that battle, the man who was so close to God and wanted to please him so deeply that when Saul was right in his grip, he refused to kill him. This wonderful, godly man who the Bible calls a god after his own heart is in trouble. He's at home. He's walking along on his rooftop. The text says that he's taking a nap late in the afternoon. We get the impression of a sedentary king now, sleeping the afternoons away, his greatest battles Behind him, he sees a very beautiful woman. And then like a mafia don, he sends his henchmen to go grab her. The account is stark and lifeless. He took her. She came to him. He lay with her. Her name means daughter of a vow. And David breaks every vow that he's ever made this afternoon. His vow to God, his vow to his people, his vow to his wives. What happened to him? How did we get here? Well, for starters, the story wants us to see that David stayed home from the battle when he shouldn't have. One of the times we get into trouble is when we stay home from the battle. There's a certain battle that all of us are called to fight. We're all called to engage, and I'm not talking about military here. 
but there's a, there's a calling in all of our lives to be in the game, to be, to, to, to be engaged, to be wrestling, to be fighting, to be battling for causes greater than ourselves. And when we withdraw from the battle, we get into trouble. We're supposed to be in the battle because that is where we learn to trust in God. It's not good for our souls. It's never healthy for people to retire. Refocus, yes. Retire, no. I took one sabbatical in my life, three months. I'll never do it again. It's too long. I got out of the battle. I didn't want to come back. And there's kind of a a little standing joke among pastors, and I don't know if it's apocryphal enough, but almost every pastor I know that takes a sabbatical over three months quits when he comes back. Is that because the Lord is leading him to? Maybe. Maybe it's not good to be out of the battle that long. We also have a sense that David has lost his way vocationally. He's won his battles, conquered his enemies, taken his wives, which he wasn't supposed to do. Deuteronomy made that very clear. Built his house, grabbed all the power he can grab. He wanted to build God a temple. God said, no. And so he seems kind of unfocused now. He's he's kind of done it all. He's, He's wandering about. He seems bored. That's a dangerous place to be spiritually. Boredom is one of the great spiritual enemies. I had a friend who was pastoring a large church, and I'd heard about a, a, a long-term faithful pastor who had an affair. And I said, what, what happened? I knew he was a wonderful person. And he said, uh, he got bored. Boredom is a time when we get into moral trouble. David also has become very, very powerful. He's become everything the prophet Samuel warned that a king would become. Power is dangerous. He also seems isolated. Do you notice in this little first part of the story, as opposed to earlier moments in his life, David isn't going to Nathan and thinking, what do you think about this idea? He's not going to Jonathan and pouring out his heart. He's alone. Nobody is speaking into his life. He's too powerful now. And so he's in danger. He's not seeking the Lord either. There's nothing in this that we read in earlier days where he inquired of the Lord or he went before the ark to worship or anything like that. He's just kind of doing what he wants to do. And maybe there's a kind of metaphor here, too. The story begins with the season changing. Now, season changes are dangerous times in our lives. When the the weather shifts, when the structures around us change, when the patterns of our life shift and we go from an old thing to a new thing, it can be exciting, it can be real dangerous. We... We've been kicking around this idea of liminality. It's, it's, a, it's a word I keep running into in different reading. It's, it's about when seasons change. And it's very morally precarious. I'll read one definition again. Liminal space is unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be 
but where the biblical God is always leading them. It's when you've left the tried and true but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It's when you're finally out of the way. It's when you're between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. If you're not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you'll run anything to flee this terrible cloud of unknowing. Those times of transition, of season change, uh, seem to me especially ripe for moral failure because all the structures that are supposed to be in place to support us, all the familiarity, the patterns, the disciplines are kind of go away. And then maybe I'm reading too much in here, but I couldn't help but read this this week and wonder, wonder if David was not handling midlife very well. It's hard to know exactly how old he is. I read estimates of he's probably about 50 at this point. I'm reminded of Dante's Inferno. He starts with this quote, Midway in life's journey, I found myself in a dark wood, having lost the way. And it seems like that's David. He's done about everything he thought he was supposed to do. And the one other thing he wanted to do, build the temple, God says, I don't want you to do that. And it's almost like he just doesn't know what to do with the rest of his life. So he's sleeping on the couch and essentially doing pornographic things from his rooftop. He's just kind of imploding. So often in midlife, people get into sexual sin. And all the books will say it's not about sex. It's about a yearning to connect, to be alive, to find transcendence, to find something new, to escape death and mortality. Perhaps that's something that's happening to David as well. Well, why is this story in the Bible? One of the reasons the biblical writer wrote it and the biblical editors included it was it's a warning. We're supposed to read this and be warned. It's a cautionary tale. And, and before we just focus on the specific aspect of David's sin, what's the core of it? It's sexual sin, but what really is the core of it? He's, he's not loving God and loving neighbor. There's an ancient definition of sins called the, 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 the heart turned in on itself. David started out loving God, loving neighbor, loving his kingdom, but now his heart has kind of turned in on itself, and it's all about him. Do you notice how little affection there is in the story for Bathsheba? There's nothing in here that indicates David cares for her as a human being at all. He has become a very self-centered, self-focused man. That's his core sin. So how do we avoid becoming like David? Stay in the battle? You know, some of us are playing defense. Playing not to lose. Coach told me once that that's when almost every major injury happens in a football game in the fourth quarter when you're up 
and you back off and you try not to lose, that's when you get hurt. You were not meant to play not to lose. Stay in the battle. Do that hard work of vocational discernment. I hope you have people in your life that you're talking about when you get bored. Pay attention to your boredom, beloved. It's a sign. It's, you're not supposed to be bored all the time. Be wary of power. As you move up the ranks, make sure you still have one or two people that can ask the hard question. Keep seeking the Lord. Get up early, spend time with Him, read, pray, worship, come to corporate worship, take the sacrament. Bathsheba only has three words in the whole story. I am pregnant. We never meet her. We never get to know her. And then the cover-up begins. And, and this is the... When the story starts, I mean, it's ugly already, but this is when it gets really ugly because right now is when David should have written Psalm 51, right? Psalm 51 is what David writes later after it's all blown up. Now is when he should have written Psalm 51. If he had stopped here... And confessed his sin to the Lord. He'd encountered grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the whole course of Israel would have been different. So I want you just to think a little bit tonight about an area in your life that you know is not pleasing to the Lord. It might be an attitude, it might be a habit might be a behavior, relationship. Beloved, if you hold on to that and don't confess it, it just gets worse and worse and worse and harder and harder and harder to let go of. Now's the time. There's grace, as we sang tonight. There's grace, there's mercy. Now's the time. Little things turn into big things if we hold on to them. Well, David calls Uriah from the front. He's a Hittite. He's not born into the child of Israel, as a child of Israel, but his name Uriah means the light of Yahweh. (laughs) So he's a convert. He's become a worshiper of the Lord. And so in, in, Sandy Lanzoni teaches English, and she explained this idea of a foil in literature where you have an opposite. And so this, this uh, pagan man who was born outside the fold of Israel has all the virtues of a godly king, while the godly king has none of them. And so this man is a, is a worshiper of, of Yahweh. David calls him in from the front. He uses a euphemism for having sex with his wife, sends him down to his house. Um, He should have known that Israelite soldiers practice abstinence in wartime, and so David's intelligence system tells him that he doesn't go into his wife. Now, it's interesting. Uriah doesn't say to the king, how do you know that? You don't say that to kings. And perhaps Uriah 
already figured out something was going down. But either way, he does not sleep with his wife. David gets him drunk in a last desperate attempt to cover up the pregnancy. It still doesn't work. Now David should really have written Psalm 51. I mean, it would have been harder, but still, there would have been so much grace and so much mercy. Maybe that's you. Maybe God's got you here tonight and you know there's this thing you're hanging on to and you just know it's going to take you down. And now he's saying, could you give that to me, please? I love you. I love you. I see where this is going. Could you please lay that down? If you don't, you don't want to know where this is going to go. Please. David keeps going. And it only gets worse. He sends Uriah to the front with his own death warrant. It's a suggestion of how to get Uriah conveniently killed. Joab is the hatchet man every king needs to have. But there's a little detail in here that's, that's even compounds the tragedy. Joab realizes that if he just sends Uriah alone to the wall... Everybody will think, wait a minute, that's odd. He's trying to set up this guy. So what does he do? He sends a whole troop over to the wall. So they all get killed. So it will be suspicious why Uriah is. So do you see what's happened? started as sexual sin. Then it moves to the murder of one man. And then it expands to the murder of a whole troop. That's what sin does. That's... That's what's so harsh about it. It just keeps spreading. It kills. It's like cancer. And again, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You may be healed. This is what we have to keep in mind. It's hard to preach this story. This is a horrible story. But beneath it is the gospel of grace, right? I mean, God ultimately brings the Savior of the world through this line, through Bathsheba's Son, David does experience forgiveness. We always can experience forgiveness at any time. But you've got to turn back to him. He won't make you turn to him. So again, I ask you, is is there something you're holding on to that you know the Lord doesn't want you to hold on to? He's begging you. He's saying, please, please don't. Let this keep going. There's this verse in Thessalonians about their hearts becoming hardened. God doesn't want that. But he also gives you freedom to allow your heart to harden. So he's saying, even tonight, please come back now. You don't want to go where this is going. David doesn't listen. I think that James verse, confess your sins to one another, is so important. And I I don't understand all of this, but the Bible does seem to teach us that there's something powerful about confessing out loud to another human being. It's good to confess during offering confession tonight. That's very important. 
But it's not enough. There is something about going to a close friend after, after church, going out to dinner or going to coffee this week or dropping by somebody's office and just saying, I got to tell you this. Would you, would you help me? This is not who I am. It's not who I want to be. Would, would you help me? Do you have that friend? You need that friend. You know, at All Souls, we talk a lot about having conversations that matter, and sometimes that sounds sort of Dr. Phillish, but I think what we, we mean by that is if we have the kind of relationships where we can make a good confession and a friend can really walk you down the staircase of repentance and then embrace you with God's grace, God's going to do tremendous things through our lives. But if we don't have those kind of relationships and we just take this stuff on with us, we die. It's important stuff. It's important, important work. And just one little footnote. If, if God gives you the gift this week of, of a friend who says, you know, I've I got to talk to you. It's a very difficult thing to confess sin. It's humiliating. It's humbling. And so what you want to do is listen and create a space where they can share as much as they possibly can share about what's going on. And every human being I know will start right here with kind of a mumble. I'm struggling. And you will need to gently and lovingly listen and draw, draw that out. Can you say a little more? How's that affecting you? How's that affecting your relationship? Or could you talk about how that's affecting your relationship? This might take an hour. It might take two hours. But the deeper you articulate the sin, the more you avail yourself of God's grace and forgiveness. These are very holy conversations. And they need to be handled with sensitivity and care. And then make sure, after you've heard, to read Scripture to them about God's cleansing and forgiveness grace and to embrace them with a hug. Because one of the reasons God doesn't just say, it's all right, it's all between me and you, is he knows the way we taste grace is through other brothers and sisters. Well... We hold out hope, I suppose, that somehow the stunning horror of what David's done will hit him and he'll break and confess his sin. But no, he's relieved, the monarchy's saved. And then he says, this this is like one of the low points of the Bible. Hey, messenger, go tell Joab, don't let this matter trouble you. The sword devours now one and now another. Literally in the Hebrew, it's do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. And this, this is, is so heavy and sad. David is assuring David, Joab that they have not really perpetrated evil. And you know what that means. 
We've been talking about the progression of sin tonight. There comes a point when you go far enough down that you no longer tell the difference between good and evil. That's a terrifying place to be. I asked a friend once who'd been hiding something for a long, long time and essentially lying to me about it. I said, how on earth did you do that? And he said, it was easy. He said, I was so split off from that part of my life, I got so good at lying about it. It was easy. I didn't struggle at all. And the narrative ends with Bathsheba bearing a son. And the narrator says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. My bet. When we first met David, he was just so sensitive to sin. But his heart has darkened and grown cold. And I'd like you to, to think about this. I'm of the persuasion. I'm not sure I can prove this biblically. This is just a hunch. But I'm not sure your heart can stay in neutral very long. I think your heart is either moving towards sensitivity to God, to conviction of sin, to the Spirit, Or I think your heart is moving towards hardness and darkness and coldness. I'm not sure there's a middle ground. And we sang that beautiful song by Martin Luther tonight. Martin Luther starts the Reformation, brings us the gospel of grace, justification by faith. His heart was on fire for God, not at the end of his life. He died a bitter, angry man. His anti-Semitic writings are repulsive. His hatred for anyone who disagreed with him is just hard to read. His heart got hard. So I want you to think back for a moment. Five years ago, August 2011, Just think of where you were, what city, what state, what what season of life, August 2011. Now, ask this question. Over the last five years, has my heart grown more sensitive to the things of God? Or has my heart grown harder, colder, and darker. Well, I asked a little while ago, why would earth would you put this story in the Bible? And we said it was a cautionary tale. It was showing us what can happen when we don't tend to sin. You know, I think there's another reason why the, this story is in the Bible. And it's to share the gospel. God actually uses this mess, this broken, sinful man, this murderer, to bring the Savior of the world to die on the cross for our sins. 
And God, if you read in Psalm 51, actually forgives this man for murder, for sexual sin, for idolatry, and gives him a fresh start. It's not easy for him. There are consequences, right? But there's forgiveness and there's grace. Let's pray. Thank you.